Brace yourselves, my friends. This metal story is about to become one of the biggest stories in the world. I would argue it already is one of the biggest stories in the world, but it is completely underreported. Other than Reuters, Bloomberg, Mining.com, and Northern Miner, and a handful of other publications, this copper story, this metal story, is going completely under the radar. I did a search on YouTube, just out of curiosity. As we all know, there are gold videos that appear every few minutes. I did a search on copper, filtered by upload date, and basically there was one story of basically a copper junior who was being interviewed about their project. Other than that, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and I am pleased to present you with these incredible stories that are basically completely off the radar. Listen to this. Robert Freeland is warning of a major train wreck as supply stalls. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. And this is the quote, we're heading for a train wreck here. My fear is that when push finally comes to shove, copper can go up 10 times. And where have we heard that before? Remember Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs, head of commodities, saying copper is going to pull an oil? We've been talking about this for over a year. Well, here we are. And it still hasn't happened, but the warning signs are getting more intense. And if we skip over to another story very briefly before we return to Robert Friedland, available LME copper stocks fall to the lowest since 2021. This is Reuters. Copper available to the market in London Metal Exchange to prove warehouses fell to the lowest level since October 2021 after large amounts of inventory were earmarked to leave the LME system. Data from the exchange showed on Thursday. It is Tuesday today. This is a developing story, my friends. Total stocks of copper in LME warehouses stand at 80,400 metric tons. Of that, 62.5%, or 50,000 metric tons, has been set aside or cancelled for delivering out over coming weeks. This is compared with 42% previously. Now, if you have warrants, in other words, you are not planning on taking delivery of your copper at the LME and you're reading a story like this, you might be thinking twice about not taking delivery, right? I mean, this could become a self-fulfilling prophecy as the psychology of the market begins to take hold. I mean, 62.5% of the copper in LME warehouses is about to disappear. And again, we've been following this story for weeks. Remember, we first got it once we heard that they were considering, and now it's starting to happen, and it's supposed to start occurring over the coming weeks. LME stock data published with a two-day lag shows fresh cancellation of warrants, documents that convert ownership of 20,000 metric tons, mainly in New Orleans in the United States, where canceled warrants now amount to 95% of the total stock. 95% in New Orleans of the total stock is going to be taken for delivery. Think about that. Canceling warrants indicates only an intention to take delivery of metal from LME warehouses. It can be rewarranted. So they're saying it's not necessarily going to happen, but it looks like it's going to happen. So if we go back now to our Robert Friedland story, scrolling down a few paragraphs, on the supply side, output in top producer Chile has plateaued as ore quality deteriorates. Also, we've been tracking that here. The industry in general is having to dig deeper and contend with an uptick in resource nationalism and far more stringent environmental and social standards. 
Investors have yet to grasp the significance of a global rush for the building blocks of clean energy, Friedland said. He points to very low physical inventories of copper coinciding with historically low relative valuations of mining companies. Large premiums paid in recent acquisitions indicate the mining industry understands where the market is headed, he said, although consolidation won't solve the dilemma of how to boost production. Exactly. You know, consolidation we could see as a kind of financialization. Okay, we'll do an M&A. But is that going to give you more copper? In a sense, this commodities market, these metals, are at the front line of reality. And this financialized, hyper-real financial system is heading head-on into a collision with actual physical reality. And this is where we stand. You want infotainment? You want news entertainment? Well, I couldn't think of a more grand story than this. This story is huge. You know, I was just on the front page of CNBC. The headline right now, Lagarde says inflation still too high in euro area cannot declare victory yet. So just the fact that victory is even being considered is significant here because copper is below $4. If your copper 10Xs, as Robert Friedland and Jeff Curry, head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, are suggesting is possible, where is your inflation going to be? It seems to me that it's completely impossible to have low inflation with a copper price that is 10Xing, or even 4Xing for that matter. As that quote that I repeated twice last episode in the introduction said, the world is about to get a lot more expensive. Again, they're having all these inflation issues and commodities have kind of perked up a little bit, but they haven't even really got going yet. Copper is below $4. Gold is still below $2,000. Nickel is below $10. So, yeah, okay, it's not the 6 or $7 from a year or two ago, but we're just getting warmed up potentially here. Continuing this article with Robert Friedland, Friedland points to other commodities as examples of what may be in store for a tightening copper market. Chinese spot prices of molybdenum doubled from August to February amid supply disruptions and growing demand from the renewable and military sectors. One gauge of semi-processed lithium shot up 422% in 2021. Quote, when metals are required, the prices go crazy and nobody's willing to sell them. We're heading into that sort of situation. End quote. The article continues, China is a dominant player in processing of nickel, copper, cobalt, and they don't even mention rare earths and lithium and other resources that are key to economic growth and clean energy technologies. With initiatives such as the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. is seeking to curtail global dependence on China as competition between the two nations increases. The European Union has already proposed classifying copper and nickel as critical raw materials in legislation designed to bolster supplies alongside other metals key to the energy transition. My friends, the stocks are depleting as we speak. Like, I don't want to be alarmist here. And things might heal themselves here. We've seen it before. When everything looks like a sure bet, well, things tend to do the opposite. But what I see here, it's getting precarious. And we have another quote from Friedland. Quote, Europe is in a panic about where their raw material is going to come from. 
The U.S. is in a panic about where their raw material is going to come from. And so we're going to see a lot of volatility and change in the way our supply chain is organized. I'm not sure if the European Union is still in the proposal stage of classifying copper and nickel as critical raw materials, which you'd think is self-evident. If they're still in the proposal stage, I don't see a panic. I see people going in slow motion as supplies are being vacuumed off of the exchange. And what are you going to do in terms of war? You know, if all that you have left on the aluminum supply, which is a whole other story, I mean, think about it. We have copper, which is down dramatically. We've had all the issues with nickel, which still hasn't normalized, from my understanding of the situation. We have aluminum, where a good deal of the non-Russian aluminum is disappearing off of the exchanges. And then you're going to go to war with Russia, where all the aluminum is the Russian aluminum, and they could just cut that off at any point, right? Russell doesn't need to deliver. Or you're going to go to war over Taiwan, and where are you going to get all your metals from? You know, we have a great interview coming up here with Darren Collins of U.S. Critical Metals, and it's super interesting on clay lithium and how Darren thinks this is going to be a major help in providing the U.S. with the supply it needs of lithium. And I said, where is your lithium going to be processed? And it's still in China. China is a dominant player in the processing and refining of the majority of nickel, copper, cobalt, and other resources, which we could easily put rare earths and lithium into the mix. So that is our situation here. And there is one more story here, which is stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated. Bloomberg News via mining.com, billionaire Friedland says U.S. must brand copper a critical metal. Quote, it has to be, it's obvious, he said in a Bloomberg TV interview with Alex Steele and Guy Johnson. Quote, America hasn't developed a mine of consequence for 40 years. The mining of copper is absolutely critical. So Friedland is setting off the alarm on copper. And I think we would be quite wise to listen. So that is the situation here. So again, I'm very pleased to welcome Darren Collins, founder, president, and CEO of U.S. Critical Metals to this week's podcast. And it's a very interesting interview on the boots on the ground view of what it's like to develop for critical metals in the United States. And it's quite fascinating. Already a partnership with the military, permitting has gone well whereas financing could be slightly better. And he was even pointing to Canada and the flow-through share structure as a model that the U.S. might be wise to adopt. So all very interesting, a huge show and massive stories here that we need to cover. Thank you once again for joining us. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts Whatever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. Turning to the website, it's not over. There is another update on the copper story. So that first one was from June 22nd, and that was a Thursday, remember? Now I have another one from Monday, June 26th. And remember, it was at 62.5% the amount of copper that was going to be taken off the exchange. That has risen to 68%. Reuters via Nasdaq.com, tight LME copper stocks push premium for nearby contract to seven-month high. The premium for copper for nearby delivery on the London Metal Exchange over the three-month contract has jumped 
to a seven-month peak due to a decline in stocks available to the market in LME-registered warehouses. The premium or backwardation for cash copper over the three-month contract climbed to $18.74 a metric ton at the market close on Friday, its highest since November 2022. This compared to a discount or contango of $28.50 two weeks ago. Unwarrant copper stocks in LME warehouses have fallen to the lowest level since October 2021 after large amounts of inventory were earmarked to leave the LME system. The latest drop in LME stocks came in data on Monday, showing fresh cancellation of warrants, documents that confer ownership of 5,400 metric tons, mainly in Rotterdam. Cancelling warrants indicates an intention to take delivery of metal. So first we heard in New Orleans, now we're hearing Rotterdam. The LME data is published with a one-day lag. As I say, a developing story here. Total stocks of copper in LME warehouses stand at 80,000 metric tons. Of that, 68%, or 54,000 metric tons, has been set aside or cancelled for delivering out over coming weeks. LME's benchmark three-month copper prices were up 0.3% at $8,418 per metric ton. So that is the latest. So I will be searching here daily to see the latest. I mean, sometimes these stories flare out. So you don't want to be overly dramatic about it. But again, we don't see a reversal here. We see an intensification in that last story. Continuing on, what really happened the night the nickel market broke, Bloomberg News. Now, this is an in-depth description of what happened you know, shortly after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, what happened on the LME and the super controversial nickel story. I think a lot of us already know that story. It is quite long, but it is on mining.com. And there is one part near the end I wanted to highlight. The speed with which the nickel price rose. And here is a section called Dizzying Ascent. It was soon after this that nickel prices started the most dizzying part of their ascent. By the time Chamberlain woke at 5.30 a.m., the price was already $60,000 a ton. In the next 38 minutes, it rose another $40,000. And we have a quote from Jane Street, who said in a court filing, quote, the abandonment of price bans caused or at least materially contributed to the speed and scale of the increase in prices. Without price bans in place, the LME could not control price volatility at all. So just a little bit of a taste of what can happen when you start running out of the metal. And the crazy thing is there were buyers, right? So just kind of an addendum to our whole discussion here. And the court case is now done, as far as I know, and I think they're simply waiting for the outcome. And we have another story here. This is Reuters via mining.com. Nerves on edge as exchanges funds await ruling in LME nickel case. And this is also from Monday, June 26th. Exchanges are in an uncomfortable wait for the outcome of a lawsuit by two financial firms against the London Metal Exchange for voiding nickel contracts, worried about possible curbs on their ability to react in crisis situations if the LME loses. Whichever side wins in the case that wrapped up three days of hearings on Thursday in the wake of a chaotic spike in nickel prices in March last year, the stakes are huge for London's status as a major global financial center. We discussed this last episode in depth. 
If the LME wins the argument, there's potential for angry investors to move their business elsewhere, less convinced by London markets and their governance. A decision isn't expected for at least a month after judgment was reserved on Thursday. Several trading firms and investment funds are rooting for U.S.-based hedge fund Elliott Associates and market maker Jane Street Global Trading in their $472 million lawsuit, seeing the case as a key test of whether markets in London are fair. And we have a quote from a regulatory source that declined to be named, quote, if the LME loses, then it is going to send shockwaves everywhere. Every time an exchange or a clearinghouse makes a decision going forward, they could be legally challenged, leaving them exposed to large claims. And again, it is the world's oldest venue for industrial metals, and it said it had no choice but to suspend trading and annul deals because a slew of trading firms would have defaulted, sending a, quote, death spiral of contagion throughout the financial system. And there's just a little bit more on London's status as the main metals exchange in global markets. Quote, it could make the UK a less attractive place to do business, said a regulation expert at a bank. Funds could easily go to another jurisdiction. And that same source also said, quote, funds will say London lost control and we are better off trading in the US. It is safer. They have more respect for free markets. Sounds like a no-win situation, actually. So that is going to come in about a month, that ruling, apparently. Continuing on, U.S. Senate overwhelmingly backs tax treaty with Chile. This is Reuters via Mining.com, and I think this is a very illustrative example of how natural resources are a form of geopolitical power. Wait till you see this story. The U.S. Senate voted overwhelmingly on Thursday in favor of a tax treaty with Chile, seen as crucial for ensuring access for U.S. companies to lithium, a mineral essential for electric vehicle batteries. The Senate backed ratification by 95 to 2, comfortably over the two-thirds supermajority required to approve treaties in the 100-member chamber. Final approval will send the treaty to the White House, which said President Joe Biden planned to sign it. Chile's Congress approved the treaty in 2015. It first came up in the U.S. Senate in 2012 but failed to advance partly due to opposition from Republican Senator Rand Paul, one of the no votes on Thursday, who said he was concerned it could allow foreign tax authorities to obtain information on U.S. citizens. Business interests have been pushing for the tax agreement for years. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce called it an urgent priority. Without it, taxes on U.S. companies with Chilean operations could climb to more than 44%, the business group said. And then we have a quote from Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who said on Thursday, quote, as the world races to advance clean technologies, Chile will be a critical ally for anyone looking to lead the way. If the United States is serious about remaining ahead of countries like China, it's imperative we pass this treaty today. So the moral of the story for me, was the fact that this was being resisted and resisted and resisted for over a decade, since 2012. But now, because of the lack of lithium in the U.S. and the U.S. realizing it needs Chile's lithium, it has passed. And that, my friends, is an important lesson, I think, that we should take away from this. Continuing on, Indonesia to ban copper exports once Freeport Amman plants open. Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Indonesia will stop exporting copper concentrates as soon as Freeport Indonesia and Amman Mineral International finish building smelters next year. 
Quote, if these two big companies complete their smelters, that means we will no longer export raw copper because it will be processed domestically to become copper cathodes, end quote, said President Joko Widodo in a speech on Tuesday. He expects both facilities to start producing in May 2024. Copper is set to follow nickel as Indonesia's next focus in the country's push for more onshore refining as it seeks to climb up the commodities value chain. So exactly, they did this first with nickel, now they're doing it with copper. So more fascinating developments here. Zambia state firm says Zijin Sibanye interested in Mopani copper mines. This is Reuters via mining.com. Zambia state-owned ZCCM Investment Holdings confirmed on Monday that China's Zijin Mining and Sibanye Stillwater are among investors shortlisted to buy Mopani copper mines. The list includes those companies, China's Norinco Group, and an investment vehicle owned by ex-Glencore officials, Reuters reported June 20th, citing sources. The search for new investors for Mopani is likely to be concluded within the next two months. ZCCM Naboda Vibeti told Reuters at a mining conference in London, the mine would require at least $1 billion in funding over the next five to six years, Vibeti said. Attracting a new investor at Mopani is part of the government's plan to triple copper output in Africa's second largest producer over the next decade. Switzerland-based commodities giant Glencore sold a 73% stake in Mopani to ZCCM in 2021 for $1.5 billion in a deal funded by debt, but it retained offtake rights to Mopani's copper production until the debt has been repaid in full. So Zijin and Sibanye interested in Zambia's copper mines. And finally, Swiss gold exports rise in May due to higher shipments to India. This is Reuters via mining.com. Swiss gold exports rose in May after falling to their lowest in 10 months in April due to higher shipments to India, Swiss Customs data showed. Switzerland is the world's biggest bullion refining and transit hub, while China and India are the largest consumer markets. Swiss gold exports to India in May were the highest since September 2022, The data released on Tuesday showed consumer demand for the precious metal in Asia is usually sensitive to high prices. Gold prices are down almost 7% since early May when they hit a near-record high of $2,072. The metal touched its lowest since March 13th of $1,919.60 per troy ounce on Wednesday due to rising yields and technical selling pressure. And finally, BHP warns carbon emissions to rise on bumpy net-zero path. Bloomberg News via mining.com. So, of course, they were going to reduce their emissions, but they are actually rising. BHP Group is warning its carbon emissions will rise in the short term with rapid technological advances and industrial collaboration needed if the mining giant is to reach its goal of net zero emissions by 2050. So that is quite interesting as well. And that may be true for the entire grid. I mean, really, if we're going to have this massive build-out one would expect fossil fuel emissions would rise before the green energy grid were to take hold. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. prices. Let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and it is yielding 3.72%. That is 0.04% lower than last week. And the U.K. 10-year gilt 
is at 4.37%, so a bit lower than last week after it smashed against 4.5%. That was quite dramatic, what we were seeing there, So, but still elevated. So that is interesting. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $1,930.55 per ounce. That is $24 lower than last week. Silver is also lower at $22.80 per ounce. That is $1.15 lower than last week. Platinum also lower at $928.16 per ounce. That is $46 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,313.03 per ounce. That is $96 lower than last week. And really dropping to a new low here on the weekly. We haven't seen this low really since we started tracking palladium. 1,313. That is a new weekly low. And there's a story that we never got to, but I'll read you the headline here. Palladium prices in retreat on EV prospects and growth risks. So as gasoline-powered cars come off the market, palladium is taking a hit. And we have Jeffrey Christian mentioned it's kind of an illiquid market and very much goes according to the fortunes of gas-powered vehicles. Turning to industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.78 per pound. That is $0.09 lower than last week. Iron ore is trading at $112.46 per metric ton. That is a dollar lower than last week. Aluminum is down four cents at 98 cents per pound. Lead is unchanged at 99 cents per pound. Nickel is back below $10 at $9.58 per pound. That is 83 cents lower than last week. And tin is also lower at $12.01 per pound. That is 34 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.39 per pound. Lithium is also lower at $42.93 per kilogram. That is a dollar lower than last week. And uranium is also lower at $56.50 per pound. That is a dollar lower than last week. And zinc also down at $1.06 per pound. That is four cents lower than last week. So across the board, metal prices are lower. So that is keeping things interesting as ever. And one imagines this is on growth concerns, as that headline said, referring to palladium. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Darren Collins for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast. He is founder, president, and CEO of U.S. Critical Metals. And he gives a fascinating interview of what it is like to develop for critical minerals in the United States and also... A fascinating big picture take on how he sees a generational opportunity as energy transitions from fossil fuels to metals. A fascinating investment thesis, which is kind of easy to get excited about, particularly as metal prices go lower. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Darren Collins, founder, president, and CEO of U.S. Critical Metals for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast. Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Well, 
Indeed, the pleasure is mine. It's such an interesting area that you're in right now, critical metals, as your company is called. And it's kind of top of mind, amazingly, for a lot of us who have been in the mining business for a little while here. It's top of mind with a lot of lawmakers now. How are we going to source critical metals? So as a way of beginning here, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and about U.S. critical metals and what you're up to. Excellent. So I'll start by just giving a very brief background on my uh, on myself. I got about 15 years of experience in mining and capital markets. I started with a group called Quest Capital uh, that subsequently became Sprott Resource Lending Corp. That was really where I, I started my career and then moved forward to, to work in, uh, in the UK for a mid-market investment bank there. And for about the last 10 or more years, been been really focused on, on building companies and, and been fortunate to have some good success doing so. About a number of years ago now, a group of longstanding partners and myself really looked at the landscape and said there was a real void in companies really looking to you know, make discoveries within the U.S., solely focused on the U.S. as you know, really the, the tip of the spear in terms of addressing what are some pretty you know, significant shortfalls estimated in critical commodities that are essential to really moving forward U.S. interests. We look at the cycle for you know mining in general. I look back to you know 2009, 10, 11, 12, really peaking in 12 that cycle, and really what was driving that was was BRIC was the emergence of countries, middle class, and really driving demand for commodities. Since then, there's been certainly a lack of investment within the resource space over the last 10 years, and I really view this market as really going to take more of a, a position this next cycle of uh, kind of a deglobalization theme in, in certain respects. And what I mean by that is, you know, an increasing focus on domestic resources and reserves, specifically in this case, the United States, as a security of supply and, and national interest consideration. We look at what's happening around the world, you know, the situation in Ukraine, you know, potentially a boiling over situation between China, Taiwan, you know, significant amounts of M&A activity by countries with, you know, interests that are potentially contrary to those of the United States and places like Latin America. And it's really the, the void that we look to address is, you know, ensuring that there are discoveries, those discoveries built out into resources and reserves, and then ultimately mined within the United States. So that was really the, the genesis of what we believe is is a substantial opportunity and void within the market, specifically for, for critical metals within the U.S. Well, it seems like you had a certain amount of foresight starting when you did, and it seems like you had a kind of direct focus on the United States and realizing, suspecting that at a certain point, you're going to need critical metals in the U.S. and that, you know, for them to be locally sourced would be advantageous. So critical metals itself is a somewhat of a debatable term. So how did you go about this? Do you start looking at geological maps? Were you opportunistic in what you saw that was available? How did you go about this whole process and starting the company? Well, certainly started off with background and experience having participated in and really had the finger on the pulse of, of commodity markets for a long period of time, my partners, founding partners as well. And, you know, really looked at those commodities as defined by U.S. government. You know, what are critical commodities are defined by specific governments. Governments put out a list. We do in 
Canada, the US does as well. And really looking to address the most critical of those in, in the context of supply gaps. And then that obviously in the context of relationships and asset opportunities that we we had available. So one of the cornerstones again of, of the company is, is really again, identifying those commodities in which we're looking to address in the company as a portfolio right now, we have lithium exposure, rare earth exposure, and cobalt exposure. And then really looking to you know source projects off groups with very well-known track records in terms of prospecting claims and ultimately you know earning in on those claims where we are just about to fulfill 100% interest in our Nevada lithium asset. That asset was actually sourced from the same group that put together the acreage positions initially for Ioneer and American Lithium. So very deep relationships, again, kind of a you know top-down type approach, looking at the commodities, looking at the Rolodex, having the discussions, and then ultimately putting together smart deals that give us exposure across those commodities. Interesting. And would you say that lithium is the main focus of the company, or are there other metals that are top of mind? So certainly the most advanced of our assets and the one that has received the most market attention to date is our our Nevada lithium asset. It's uh, the Clayton Ridge. It is in the Clayton Valley area, which is the only lithium producing area within the United States. That is a drill ready and permitted project that we will be drilling here coming up soon that will fulfill the terms of our earn in obligation. But really what we have is a basin that is actually uh, elevated from where the lower Clayton Valley system is. And actually what we believe to be potentially a source of the lithium within the lower valley system. The asset itself has broadly disseminated lithium clay beds visible at surface. We've mapped those. We believe that they are up to 200 meters thick before we hit the basement floor. And we are seeing economic grade, again, broadly distributed on surface as, you know, as we've sampled. So really the asset has all the right ingredients for making a lithium discovery within the state of Nevada, which is certainly a tier one mining jurisdiction and, you know, arguably the best mining jurisdiction within the United States. So we're quite excited to be going out and doing a mating drill program on that asset coming up here soon. And then the other assets within the portfolio, we have a rare earth asset in the south of Montana. We actually sourced that from the former head rare earth analyst at USGS. Go figure, USGS is flying airborne geophysics over the south of Montana and the north of Idaho, looking for new rare earth sources within the United States and critical mineral sources within the United States. The asset itself is district scale, exceptionally high grade, up to 18% light rare earths, very heavy in neodymium and praseodymium. So certainly that is, uh, is an exciting asset that is you know, very much tip of the spear on greenfield exploration and opening up a new rare earth district within the United States, where so far there's really only one rare earth producing asset in the United States, that's Mountain Pass, it's MP materials, it used to be Molly Corp. So certainly an interesting asset there. And then we have a cobalt asset, cobalt quite topical, given that the majority of cobalt in the world is, is sourced from the Congo, where you have some very specific considerations, child labor, environmental, issues certainly not uh, not exactly the most favorable situation in in terms of cobalt production out of the congo but we have an asset right in the heart of the idaho cobalt belt which is unique because you can actually find cobalt as one of the primary metals within the deposit we are located right on the geologic trend from gervois mining to fully commissioned mine that is currently on care and maintenance but they've actually announced exploration plans and, and government funding behind them 
So we expect to see some interesting results out of that area. So again, a very unique unique asset and forms part of an overall portfolio where we have certainly some some differentiated assets in that case. And before we get to kind of the government environment and what that's actually like boots on the ground for you, before we get to that, can you just speak a little bit about clay lithium? I mean, when I think about lithium, I think of these Atacama salt flats and this sort of thing. Is this different? So lithium clay is is really an interesting and unique opportunity in in my opinion particularly within the context of the us so when we look at the landscape of where lithium is sourced in the current context it's really australia and latin america and the lithium triangle the australians really extract their lithium from hard rock operations and the latin americans more from brine operations, hard rock and brine really being the two predominant sources of lithium within the world today. The emerging third viable option for lithium sourcing within the world is lithium clay. And, you know, in the context of the U.S., the U.S. has, you know, some brine opportunities, but I'd certainly argue not the scale of Latin America. When you look at Silver Peak, for instance, which is an Albemarle in the Clayton Valley, again, the only lithium producing asset within the U.S., you have about 5,000 tons of lithium carbonate equivalent production per year, at least based on the last numbers that I looked at. And you compare that to a Solar Atacama down in Chile does 85,000 tons of lithium carbonate equivalent per year. So you have you know, quite a differential of, of scale there in the context of brine operations. And you know, really, I don't see the U.S. with that scale of opportunity that, that Latin America has in terms of brine. Hard rock operations, certainly we've been talking a lot about those in uh, in Canada. Canada has very large greenstone belts, probably the largest greenstone belt in the world, the Abitibi Greenstone Belt, you know, certainly a lot of greenstone belts in Australia as well. The U.S. doesn't really have the same scale of opportunity there as the Australians and, and Canadians do. But what the U.S. does have is a lot of lithium bearing claystone, specifically in the state of, of Nevada. There's been a good amount of capital invested into developing out those resources now into reserves and really a lot of work done on the processing and flow sheet design as it relates to extracting lithium from clay. Now that has been proven out on a pilot plant scale and now is being advanced towards commercial production. And the tip of the spear on that is is really Lithium Americas in partnership with General Motors who has put up 650 million of capital commitments as well as a commitment to purchase a significant amount of the offtake associated with the project. What that means, in my opinion, is you're gonna have a significant re-rating of the valuation of lithium clay assets within the US. One, you will have American Lithium and General Motors take lithium from clay from pilot plant scale through to commercial production. That will, you know, obviously underscore the the viability of lithium from claystone and then second again back to what i was originally talking about as you know kind of a deglobalization or you know national source of supply and resource security you will have these assets located within a tier one jurisdiction within the united states again nevada and those assets should always demand a premium as compared to other regions of the world that are perhaps not as as stable in the context of their mining law regulation and that's, you know, obviously evident. You have Chile announcing a partial nationalization of their lithium assets. The Mexican government saying that lithium production will be the interest of the Mexican government. So really, I think that that will drive and really re-rate the valuation 
of lithium clay stones as a solution to what is a pretty significant forecasted lithium shortfall for the United States of America. Okay, excellent. Now, one of the things we often hear is there's lots of the metal, it's actually the processing. I mean, Ross Beattie was out there saying this recently. The bigger issue is the processing, and most of that is in China. What's the deal with the clay lithium? Are you guys able to process it in country? Do you need to export it and send it over to China to process it? Well, I'd say that, you know, the U.S. government is, is and, you know, Mr. B is obviously a, a very experienced and, and capable uh, industry executive, and, and he draws a, you know, a very important point. The U.S. government is certainly making, you know, significant investment and in putting significant incentives in place through the Inflation Reduction Act and other, you know, critical uh, commodity policy pieces to, to really advance and address that situation. So you do have capacity being built within the U.S., these things obviously take time, but I think that a good amount of that will coincide with essentially the development and construction timeline and the like of these you know, various assets that are up and coming within the US, specifically ours as well. So I see that situation being addressed over time. It's certainly been identified, but it is a near-term risk that China has the capacity. And even, you know, for example, in, in rare earths, you know, Mountain Pass, MP materials, that is being sent over those rare earths to, to China to process. It's, you know, not only again having the resources and reserves, but as you you mentioned, having uh, having the processing capacity as well. And that's currently being addressed in the US by a number of states. Fascinating. So as it stands, there is no immediate, in a sense, solution to the processing. But in the future, you see a convergence. It's being worked on, so to speak. And as projects come online, so should processing facilities. It's being worked on. And I mean, in you obviously understand mining well, and so do your, your listeners. Like from the time of discovery through the time of production, including development, environmental, permitting, construction, financing certainly being a big element of that you're looking at you know a solid at least eight year you know timeline to bring these assets online so you obviously develop out a pipeline of projects to meet the future anticipated demand for you know the various commodities and that really i think gives some lead time for these processing assets and, and capabilities to come online but i see it as a near-term risk and you know really that could result in significant re-rating of, you know, indeed the, the lithium price if, you know, supply becomes constrained on a global basis because countries start saying, hey, look, we have our own electrification objectives. We need our own supply of lithium, specifically talking about um, China in this case. Why are we going to sell it to the Americans is essentially the mentality at the end of the day. So there could be some pretty significant near-term shocks to lithium supply chain and ultimately the lithium pricing. When prices go up, you know, generally equities follow. So there could be some pretty significant market activity here as, as things unfold, time will tell. And so on the policy maker front then, and speaking in the big picture here, what is the kind of urgency that you see? Like, are you hearing from lawmakers at all? Are you seeing a lot of encouragement? Do you not hear anything? Is it hard to get money? Is money flowing in? you know, in large amounts. Uh, tell me a little bit just about your situation as far as just working. Are you being helped along here at all? Are you on your own? Could you just color that in a little bit for us? So it's interesting. The one group that we are working with is specifically on our rare earth assets, and it's the U.S. Army Research Lab, given neodymium and praseodymium have 
have very specific applications related to military defense type technologies. And of course, you know, neodymium and praseodymium being in, you know, comparatively short supply within the United States. So we are getting some some government assistance there, but it's interesting in the context of I haven't seen much in the way of funding from government in the context of of exploration. You know, you look at Canada and there's flow through type financing. There isn't anything like that available in the U.S. I think the U.S. would be, you know, in good position to, you know, provide those kind of tax incentives to investors for the exploration of of critical commodities, critical metals. It would certainly be a, a step in the right direction in the exploration context. But really where you're seeing the majority of the funds being allocated by the US government is really for you know development construction type activities so more advanced stage type assets the exception to that would be uh, Gervois just put out a news release saying that they have 15 million dollars of government commitment for exploration on their Idaho cobalt asset which is again right next to ours so there is some potential there now that's a fully commissioned permitted project that's essentially been you know constructed on care and maintenance at this point as they you know look to build out the reserves resources and ultimately mine life for the project but i think it's quite favorable what the us has done but it would be good to see more incentives at the you know at the expiration level and really you know those funds being allocated to making new discoveries within the us as opposed to really again focused on the construction and development aspects of the mining life cycle very interesting so just as we're wrapping up here then how is the permitting then have you had to do any permitting yet, or is that still to come? So BLM land, our principal uh, our principal lithium asset in uh, Nevada. Lithium in Nevada is very well known by the Bureau of, of Land Management, particularly within our area. There's been a lot of work done there, so the, the professionals at the BLM are quite familiar with the type of assets with, you know, drill programs. We got our drill program permitted within 15 days, if I'm not mistaken, from submitting the application. So that was quite a favorable turnaround and, you know, certainly indicative, again, of the, the regional activity within uh, within Nevada and the Clayton Valley area. So quite favorable there. On our Montana asset, it's going to be more work, to be honest. We are in the south of Montana. It is forest service land, so it will require a plan of operations. So we're underway on on that in terms of, you know, really looking to to have the asset to a point where it can be drilled and and really looking at the flora, fauna, various biologic uh, considerations, and and really looking to minimize footprint there. The BLM is is definitely a, an expedited process in in Nevada, given you can drill on you know a notice of intent and and permit without having to do a full plan of operation. So it's really asset specific, and really depends on whether you're working with uh, with Forest Service or or BLM. Fascinating. I love this boots on the ground. It's almost like reporting for us. This is wonderful uh, to hear. So as a final question, then, do you have any final thoughts on kind of where we are with this whole rerouting of the supply chain, critical metals? How is North America doing? Do you have any kind of big picture thoughts to finish off here? Sure. Well, I think that the timing is really now. I mean, what we're talking about is is very much, in my opinion, a once in a generational opportunity where we're talking about electrifying um, our sources of energy, which obviously requires, you know, battery storage technologies and, and capacity. But what we're talking about really at the end of the day from a transportation um, perspective is a transitioning of what has historically been fossil fuel-based solutions, now transitioning to mineral-based solutions, lithium and cobalt and, and rare earths and the like. 
When you look at the valuations, even in today's context of the world's largest oil and gas companies compared to the world's largest mining companies, you see a, quite a considerable disconnect. And as you know, I believe capital transitions out of you know fossil fuel industries to you know more mining-based solutions and energy storage, that transition of capital is is quite considerable when you look at the numbers. So I really think we're looking at a you know a generational opportunity here within the context of of mining and what it's going to mean for our society, our world going forward as we we look to transition to a much greener economy. Well, those were exciting words as I was just thinking about that comparison as you're discussing that. And that is incredible. It it does kind of you kind of paint really in a broad picture here the opportunity that is possible here. So Darren Collins, founder President and CEO of U.S. Critical Metals, thank you for joining us on this week's Northern Miner podcast. Excellent. Thank you once again to Darren Collins and U.S. Critical Metals for joining us on this week's episode. And thank you, dear listener, as ever, for joining us and supporting this program. Next week, we have Roberta Caselli out of London, and she's going to give us the latest on metal stocks. I think copper is her specialty, so the time is ripe for this discussion. I'm very excited about it. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.